Good morning, family. It's wonderful to see you this morning. I know it's a bit of a colder day. When we got to the South Church this morning, it was just by two degrees, and uh, the grass was frosted over, um, so lots of coffee and tea was consumed just to get us going. But it's great to be with you this morning, and I trust that you are uh, all well, and it's wonderful to be together in such a special sense of the Lord's presence. We are very privileged this morning to have some guests with us, and and of which one of them will come and share the word. But I'd like to, first of all, just introduce Ian Smith to you. Ian, if you just stand and everybody can give a wave to Ian. He's from Oxford in the UK. And uh, he's the executive director of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And you know that as a community, we've built a good relationship with that ministry and have had the privilege of having a couple of the uh, speakers come and be with us. And uh, so it's a real privilege to have Ian with us, and then you can also see who these people are coming to spend time with, and we really appreciate you, and, and thank you, Ian, for being with us. Then, uh, Machlatsi Mashue is our, a good friend of us. He's been here many times, uh, also accompanying sometimes the other RZIM speakers and being with them, but today he's going to share the word with us. He's the National Director for, of South Africa for RZIM Ministries, and um, we had him yesterday share with us at a TCN event we had, and it was such a good impartation from his side, and I know that the word that he'll be sharing with you this morning, you can really just receive that as part of the gospel, and a great story that he will tell within that. So won't you join me, and uh, just give him a really good round of applause, and welcome Maklatsi on stage with us this morning, and uh, have fun. Thank you very much, Pastor Louis. Uh, good morning. Dumelang Heita. Uh, it's a real privilege to, to be here uh, with you this morning and uh, to be part of uh, an amazing work that God is doing here. Uh, it's always, for me, very encouraging uh, just to see uh, uh, from time to time uh, how much uh, is being accomplished, and not only within these four walls or during this time, but how much, as we spoke yesterday, uh, so many people leave here and uh, they go and really touch lives and change the nation in various ways and where they find themselves, but through some of the conversations that uh, start here. Uh, it's a privilege for me to, to be able to share uh, as part of an installment in the greater theme uh, that uh, Pastor Lou and the team have been speaking on, on, uh, on uh, lesser known heroes. Uh, uh, in the Bible, lesser-known heroes in the Bible, people who uh, accomplished uh, amazing things, but for one reason or another, we just uh, no, don't talk about them too, uh, too much. Uh, but before I, I go there, um, you know, as has already been said, I don't know if, uh, but I'd rate Pastor Louis about 90% in saying my name correctly. Uh, my name is Mahlazi. Uh, and uh, I really uh, now insist people uh, say it uh, or call my name properly and say it uh, properly because it's, it's, it's got a really good context in terms of where it comes from. And there's a special story I want to share about how I, I got my name. But I live in Cape Town currently with my most amazing wife, uh, Lusanda. And uh, we have three, three beautiful girls uh, aged four, two and a half, and uh, seven months. Uh, in the other congregation, people clapped when I said that. Um, I, I, I suppose people here were praying. Um, that's what that was. And I, I, rece I receive your, 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 your prayers and your intercession. Uh, it, it, it is, uh, like I said, it's, it's, it's really the toughest thing uh, that I've ever done, but also the most satisfying thing at the same time. 
that I've ever done, being a dad um, and dad to three, three amazing girls. Uh, I could preach a whole sermon about them, but that's not what um, I'm here to do. Let me tell you about uh, a lesser known hero in my life uh, on many of the platforms that I go to where people know about our ministry or me, but don't know about this person uh, who is an amazing person whose uh, faith has been quite significant for my own uh, uh, faith as well and my own story, my own understanding of the Christian story, my own mother. So when the oldest of our, of, of our, our siblings uh, was born, my sister, she was named Ba'atile. There were many girls already in our family. Uh, our family was expanding, and so one more girl prompted uh, this idea that our family is growing, it's expanding in the direction of girls. And I've done it, as I told you, I've done my part. I've got three daughters. And so she was named Ba'atile. Three years later, uh, my parents uh, were pregnant and were, were expecting uh, twin girls. My mother delivered twin, twin girls. And uh, unfortunately, one of them was stillborn. And so it's a very difficult time uh, for my mother during this time as she explains it. Uh, she explains it this way that she felt that she was really torn in half with, with one part of her heart having to mourn the loss of life and with another part having to celebrate life. They named her Deborah, gratitude. We are grateful uh, that we got to keep a life. And uh, four years later, my parents were pregnant, expecting twins, this time twin boys. And after 48 hours of labor, I know this fact because my mother won't let me forget the circumstance <laughs> of, uh, of my own birth. And so after 48 hours of labor, my mother gave birth to twin boys. She went uh, after, it was a very traumatic experience, uh, and she went and, uh, to go rest. When she recovered, she uh, recovered to the terrible news that my twin brother had passed away during the time while she was resting. So she had to once again go through this experience again, this traumatic experience of having to celebrate life and also mourn life. I was named Mashati because my parents said, we are lucky that one lived, that we got to keep this one. And uh, in the context of uh, son preference, that it is a boy. We are lucky that it is a, a boy. Then, three years later, my brother was born, was named Neo. He was alone. <laughs> he was named uh, Neo uh, because my parents said, this is a gift from God, uh, presumably to console our hearts for what we've gone through. I'd like to say the story ends there, but the story continues because not long after that, my parents were expecting twins again. And... Um, this time twin boys, and uh, unfortunately, my mother had a late miscarriage, and she lost both boys. Now, you know, in my family, we, we're pretty close. We talk about a lot of things, but this is the one area that we just didn't go to. You know, we, don't talk, we didn't talk about it. But there was one, this one question that I just really had been burning in my heart to ask my mother, and so I really found an opportunity when Lusanda and I were expecting our first uh, child, and everybody was speculating and teasing, will it be twins, and so forth, and, uh, and my mother, you know, started the conversation, and so since she started the conversation, I saw the opportunity to ask her this burning question that I've had, Mom, how have you processed this profound sense of loss in your life? And I asked her this question, and my mother's response uh, was simply this, and she said three things to me. 
She said, Mashati, number one, there are some wounds that don't fully heal on this side of eternity. Secondly, every time that I've given my heart, my wounded heart to God to attend to, I've always received it back in much better state condition than when I gave it to him. And thirdly, it's for that reason my joy, my hope, my trust is in God and with God in eternity. There are some wounds that don't fully heal on this side of eternity, she said. But given my walk with God, my experience with God, every time I've given him my wounded heart to attend to, I've always received it back in a much better state. And it's for that reason my hope, my joy, my trust is in God and with God in eternity. My mother is an amazing woman. And she reminds me of another amazing woman that we are going to read about in Matthew chapter 15. And so while you turn there, um, uh, let, me, let me share also, as you're turning there, let me tell you, you know, my mother uh, has, has played such a critical role in my life, and I'm, I'm a firm believer that if we multiplied my mother more, we would have, you know, less of crazy ideas floating around in society. Because in the way that she parents, you know, as a, as a black parent, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't t take nonsense. Um, you know, I remember a conversation, while you're turning to Matthew 15, by the way, um, I remember a conversation uh, I had with her. I, was, I had been invited to go and speak in a, in, a, in, a, in a conference, and I'd been given the topic to respond to, is human life more significant than animal or plant life? This was the, the topic. And so I told her that I was going to go and speak at such and such a conference. And she asked me, what are you speaking on? Congratulations, what are you speaking on? I said, well, the topic is, you know, uh, is human life more significant than animal or plant life? And there was a silence on the phone. She said, eh? <laughs> I said, yeah, the thing is, uh, it, it's, a, it's an apologetic conference. She said, the next question was, what do they say again? I said, no, there are some people who say, who claim that there is no, I guess, sig uh, significance in the value, you know, when you compare human life to animal and plant life. The next question was, <laughs> who are those people? She genuinely wanted to know who are those people making that argument, and I felt in that moment that if I were to name some of those people, that they would be in trouble, and I would be in trouble for knowing who they were and their arguments. You know, so I quickly changed uh, the subject because my mother was ready, in that sense, uh, to beat that kind of witchcraft out of us, I guess. <laughs> if you're in Matthew 15, say, all right, thank you. We're about to speak again, uh, another lesser-known hero in this text. And uh, Pastor Louis made this comment that sometimes people are in Scripture, especially women, are lesser-known heroes not because of their significance or the, the, the role that they played, but because of our culture that has diminished their significance in that sense. And I think this is definitely one of those cases. In Matthew 15, we read from verse 21 to 28. We read the following. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the region of Tyre and Sidon. And out came a Canaanite woman from that area who kept shouting, Show mercy upon me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. But Jesus replied to her, Not 
a word. And his disciples came and begged him, send her away, she's coming after us, shouting. Jesus replied, I was not sent to anyone except the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the woman came and bowed down before him and said, Lord, help me. Jesus replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she replied, for even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus replied to her, my dear woman, you have great faith, your wish is granted, and her daughter was cured from that moment. Now this is a difficult portion of scripture, and if all you had was this portion of scripture, as we're talking in the car, you could write a tweet, Jesus calls a woman a dog, a desperate mother a dog. Jesus ignores a desperate plea or a mother's request. It, it just doesn't look good. It doesn't seem like the Jesus that we, we know, the Jesus that we love, the Jesus who is our hero. And therefore, it's important that as we understand and try to understand what is really going on here, that we use some, some tools to help us to see and to read beyond the surface level, because we're not meant to just read the story on its own. There's a lot of things that have already been revealed about Jesus in particular that will help us in our journey to unearthing what is going on in this particular context. The first one that has been already revealed before we go and think verse by verse uh, into the scripture, the first thing is the idea that Jesus knew the thoughts, the secret and private thoughts of the people and motivations of the people who approached him. So we are to know that anybody who approaches Jesus, Jesus knows what they're thinking. We have reason to believe, good reason to believe that he read people's private emails in this sense. Secondly, it is Jesus's view of woman based on his treatment of woman that is also important and has also been revealed in the gospel, that is revealed clearly in the gospels. There's a very strong portrait of that Jesus has of woman, or the view of woman that is really sketched out in various interactions and engagements that Jesus have with women in his society. The first one is how Jesus addresses women publicly in a very difficult cultural context, given their status, given his status. Not only just addressing, but it's how and the nature of that inter interaction where we see Jesus affirming the full intrinsic value and worth of woman, the way he spoke and some of the things he said to women. For instance, he speaks about the woman who is bent and he calls a daughter of Abraham, which would have, by many co commentators' standards, sounded very controversial as affirming her spiritual status as being equal to those of men. And that's what he did in, 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 in a public context. We also see how he was very sensitive to the social and religious handicaps, if you like, that with which women had to wrestle with and struggle with in this particular context, but not only sensitive to them, but how he applies himself actively, positively, in challenging those to lift those burdens. He goes out of his way to affirm the agency, the intelligence, the, the worth, 
to communicate, of women, to communicate this message that they are worthy of God's love and concern. So his view and his treatment of women. And then thirdly, as also a, an important hermeneutical key, is the placement of women in the ministry of Jesus. Mark, which is a parallel reading of the story, Mark 7 also has the story, does this in a very neat way and shows us how women are positioned in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, briefly, some notes on that. Firstly, how they positioned. Women are presented as the only characters who serve Jesus unself, uh, unselfishly. The other people, are, are, there's, a, there's a hint of status, uh, status, authority, or trying to do something else, but women are presented as serving Jesus un, unselfishly. Secondly, it is the women who anoint Jesus before and after his death. His, and their actions are sh contrasted sharply with the religious and the political leaders who are responsible for his death. And then thirdly, women being portrayed as being the key witnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Very key events in the Christian story, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, putting women as key witnesses in a time also where much of the testimony of women did not hold much ground in the courts at this time. Jesus says it's important that women are the key witnesses to these two important events. So you take a look at the way Jesus, uh, the, the ability for Jesus to understand, to know where people were coming from and interact with them based on knowing what's already in them. That's one. Secondly, the view that Jesus has of women and he's based on his treatment of women too. But thirdly, also just the, the, uh, the, the placement of women in the ministry of uh, Jesus. Very important hermeneutical uh, tools or interpretive tools to be able to understand, at least make sense of what is going on here. So let's go back to the text and actually read it with, with some fresh eyes and see what is going on. In verse 21, we read, and we read, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the region of Tyre and Sidon. So what happens here is Jesus has, is withdrawing from Ju uh, Jewish territory and is going into uh, an area, a Phoenician, we're told it's a Phoenician region whose principal cities were Tyre and Sidon, um, both frequently condemned in the Old Testament, right, as inveterate enemies of Israel. So there's a, there's a setting here uh, that, is, 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 that, that introduces a certain sense of tension. And also, Matthew is very careful, right, to say Jesus entered the region, not the cities necessarily themselves. So we, we don't have reason to think that what is going on here is that there's a mission to pagan cities like uh, Jonah to Nineveh. What we, we, we see, he's, he's just retreating from the Jewish opposition, Jewish crowds as a whole uh, taking a break. And there's no indication that he's looking for some form of interaction with the local people. Uh, in fact, it is the woman, and then later on in the text, we see it's the crowds who make contact with Jesus. In verse 22, we read, And out came a Canaanite woman from that area who kept shouting, Show mercy upon me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. The woman's coming out here is mentioned very deliberately so that 
the reader can understand that her daughter is not with her. She's left her home to come out. Mark makes this point more explicit. But also, Matthew does this really well. He makes explicit the racial context of this story, where the story is taking place in two ways. She is from that area that we read. But secondly, he uses this term, she is a Canaanite woman. Mark uses the term Syrophoenician woman, which would be a more contemporary understanding and description, an accurate description, but she's a Canaanite woman. This is, part, is not part of contemporary language, but more part of traditional biblical vocabulary to describe the most persistent and insidious of Israel's enemies. This is a good way of saying she is the other in this context. And this idea that a Canaanite of all people should be within range to receive compassionate ministry from Israel's Messiah is a powerful point and it is developed later on in the, in fact, in both Matthew and Mark after this to make this point about the universality of the gospel. The woman's appeal, which is so repeated that it annoys the disciples, is addressed to Jesus as son of David. It's not the first time we encounter people who address Jesus this way. We encounter earlier on in the text the blind men who do so and also are also asking for a show of mercy. But the difference here is that she is a Gentile, an outsider in that sense, but also she uses two titles side by side, Lord, Son of David. She uses a messianic title for him, perhaps to try and catch the interest of a Jewish leader who does not expect to be addressed in this way, in this kind of foreign context. In verse 23, but Jesus replied to her, not a word. Jesus is quiet. And his disciples came and begged him, send her away. She's coming after us, shouting. Now, given the attitude of some of the disciples, at least shown by the disciples and other people towards the Canaanites, she's probably not surprised by this kind of treatment, let alone expecting maybe even verbal, actual verbal abuse. But she's getting the silent treatment from Jesus. But she nonetheless persists and shows a remarkable ability and willingness to challenge and rise above these social conventions, perhaps maybe made so even more energized by the fact that she is a mother who's there to intercede on behalf of her daughter. So she rises above these challenging social conventions. She's challenging them. She persists beyond those. Jesus is silent, but the disciples are not. Jesus, send her away. She is shouting. Now, they're not expressing this somehow because they're trying to protect Jesus. They express a self-interest kind of annoyance. She's coming after us. She's shouting after us. She's bothering us. Now, 12 men could easily send, you know, maybe this one woman away. But what they're actually saying is they don't just want Jesus to send her away. They just say, Jesus, do, do, do for this woman what she wants so that she, we can get rid of her. This is interesting because in this moment, they show an unquestioning confidence in the power of Jesus, but yet they are clueless 
to the issues, the racial issues that Jesus is about to highlight. They show this unquestioning confidence, but they're clueless about the heart of Jesus and what Jesus is actually seeing and what he wants to address in this particular context. In verse 24, we read, Jesus replied to the disciples, remember, I was not sent to anyone except the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, Jesus' words here are reply, of course, to the disciples, but they're said presumably loudly enough for this woman to be able to hear. Now Jesus, at surface level, seems to be saying, look, this woman's plea is beyond really the scope of operation for Israel's Messiah. Now remember what I said about Jesus understanding where this woman is coming from, understanding the view of woman. He is now preparing to set up the stage to address some very important issues with his disciples and possibly with this woman as well. But it seems as though he's verbalizing the content of his silence and his apparent reluctance to move and show this mercy that this woman is asking for. But really, as this unfolds, you begin to see that rather than actually in, uh, uh, ignoring her or actually being rude and cruel, Jesus is actually using a very important and culturally at this time relevant uh, 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 debating and teaching ploy or tactic to bring about certain lessons and to actually set up a platform where this woman is going to shine in this context. Watch what happens as we read in verse 25. But the woman came. Hearing Jesus talking to the disciples loudly, this woman came and bowed down before him and said, Lord, help me. So this woman hears Jesus verbalizing this and she moves. She receives this as an invitation. And as you read this, it's not really out of defeat where she goes, I hear you. There's nothing for me but I'm just begging. No, it, it's, a, it's a very positive and very assertive kind of move. She changes her posture. She's been shouting from a distance, but now she comes. Yes, her posture is still one that is humble, but she's very positive. She asserts herself in this. Lord, help me. She's not offering an argument yet. Lord, help me. The effect of reading this with this cultural lens would feel like and sound like actually properly read, this woman moves closer to Jesus and says, I hear what you have said. I heard what you have said. Lord, I know you and you're going to help me. I know you and you are going to help me. Verse 26, Jesus replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, there's an amazing conversation that's taking place. You've got to read just beyond the words because at surface level, again, Jesus now responds to her by introducing a very offensive metaphor, right? Referring to people in any culture. I don't know. I'm yet to find a culture, even a, a pet-loving culture where people are referred to as dogs, especially when you contrast them over against children. It's a, it's a really insulting kind of metaphor, uh, really. And so Jesus seems to add insult to injury after ignoring her, telling her no, now calling her dog. But you've got to read be 
you know, between the lines, what's going on here in this amazing interaction as you will see as it unfolds, that this is actually Jesus throwing down a challenge and this woman keeps rising above, throwing down a challenge, she rises above. Jesus creates the platform for her to shine and for her faith that he he wants to commend later in public to come forward. And this is where she comes and begins to shine. So Jesus says, it's not right to do this. She says, yes, it is, Lord, she replied. For even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. It's a very unexpected, for many people who would have there, an unexpectedly feisty response that this woman gives. She takes Jesus' parable and seems to use it against him. It's not that she's expecting to be labeled as a dog. She's saying even within the logic, there is scope to say, yeah, even Israel's Messiah who is prioritizing his mission to to the Israelites, to his people, there's no reason to believe that as he's doing that, that that mission is then only limited there or should stop there. A very important concept that is developed again over in Scripture, speaking about Israel's role to be that light to the Gentiles. Later, the church will reflect on this in a confession in Galatians 3, 28, speaking about no, woman, no, man, no male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. They'll reflect on this as a way of saying intrinsic value and worth is found in all those categories or those persons found in the person of Jesus Christ based on his work on the cross. Not in those distinctions. But she opens up a key theological issue with that statement. Yes, it is, Lord. She wins this debate because Jesus replies to her in verse 28. And Jesus replied to her, her, my dear woman, you have great faith. Your wish is granted. And her daughter was cured from that moment. Now we see Jesus. Okay, Jesus now puts down this debating ploy. Now he's speaking openly. There's a reversal of what he's appeared, apparent reluctance really to meet this woman's need. And not only that, but we see he affirms the justice of her case. He applauds the boldness of this woman shown in her refusal to just accept defeat, but to persist. Now, this is interesting that this is the only place, only time in in Matthew where there is a qualification, the kind of faith that is being described. This woman is described as great, of having great faith. Nowhere else in Matthew. In fact, in contrast, the centurion, there's an earlier story of the centurion, which is almost has the same kind of format as this. The centurion is said to have uh, uh, more faith than people in, in, in Israel. The disciples, Peter and the disciples, when it's describing their faith, is they have little faith. But this woman's faith is described as being great faith. Jesus commends her publicly. Jesus, of course, shows he knew where this was going, and the idea was just to set up the stage to really challenge 
some underlying issues and the way people, these disciples and maybe those around would have viewed this woman firstly as a woman, but also as the other. So we learned some really important lessons, but maybe some quick applications and then we close. Firstly, we learn about mothers. I want to say if you're here and you're a mom and you are praying for your children, thank you for doing that. Please keep doing that. I have a mother who prays for me and it's an amazing thing to have someone in your corner like that. And if you, you don't, please do pray. And if you're a dad here and you're not, you don't already pray for your children, just remember this is not a mother thing. It's a parent thing. Please do pray for your children. Secondly, just like Jesus did, I think that we are led here to believe we should challenge aspects of our culture that minimizes or erases the significance of the role, the needs, the value of women in our society. That we should really challenge those things. And if we want to know where our leadership comes from, we are led in the person of Christ. He did this. It's not the only time he does this. If you read of many, many of his encounters, you know we are led by a powerful male leader here. By extension, I believe we need to challenge you know, social conventions like this woman did that create and perpetuate really unjust ecosystems that justify all forms of violence against people. Jesus did this in amazing, in a very soft way, but he challenges some, some important things in this, in this context. And this woman, yes, driven by des a, a, a desperation for her daughter, really is a good model of how to apply ourselves, you know, to look, at, to, to analyze social conventions that perpetuate a culture or an ecosystem that's unjust for certain people. Because on Jesus' side, what he does and this is also a lesson from the disciples. What he does is he really challenges, in many of Jesus' parables also, we also get this point where people who are not seen or expected to be the heroes because they're the other, right, like in the story of the Good Samaritan, become the, the heroes of the story. Jesus was very intentional in doing this because he wanted to challenge this idea of there are certain people that we think should always be heroes, for instance, and what happens is there's a lens of prejudice that can prevent us from seeing people as Jesus sees them. Jesus highlights this. It's not just a political issue. This is a gospel issue, how we see and treat people and being aware of our own lenses how do we define the other and how do we treat, how do we assign value and worth because of how we view somebody who is not like us? It's a, very, it's a gospel issue. It's not a political issue. It's a gospel issue that can, according to Paul, cloud the truth of the gospel and the view of the resurrection. Let me, let me, let me just go a little deeper on that because in Galatians, there is a confrontation that... Paul has with Peter. In Galatians 2, 11, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul tells us, I confronted him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. 
Before certain men came from James, he used to sit and eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back from the Gentiles for fear of those who belong to the circumcision group. Other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in light with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile. How is it then that you expect Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Because we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by putting his, uh, uh, by through the law, but by putting faith in Christ. So we too have sought to be justified by putting our faith in Christ and not through the law, because by putting faith in the law, no man is justified. And while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes apparent that we too are sinners. Does that mean Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. For the idea is this, if I resurrect that which I have destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker because through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. It's a resurrection issue. It's a gospel issue, how we see and treat other people. There is also an important lesson on the courage and persistence of faith. This woman is an incredible example to us, and she's a hero because she looked at Jesus and put her trust, not without evidence. She said, I have reason, good reason to trust this I'm going to trust in that which I have good reason to believe is true. Lord, I know you and you're going to help me. There may be people here this morning and you're trusting God for various things. I want to encourage you to remember your walk with God. Remember what has been revealed. Remember what God has already done. Look at him dead in the eye and say, Lord, I know you and you are going to help me. And finally, there's this amazing invitation. Like I said, this idea that is developed here that says this story is for you. Not just only significant to first century people, Jews and Gentiles, but very significant today for us. The idea that God has created his amazing world, a good world that was marred by sin and evil. And again, sin and evil, not just things that happened a while ago, but things that are in our daily lives that we know of. The idea that we live in a world without making reference to God, in a world that he has created, ignoring God in his world, not being, not doing what God requires of us to do according to his law, that we have failed to live up to that. And then we stand judged and condemned and we have to face up to the consequences of our law-breaking and our rebellion. But thank God who sent Jesus Christ to come and live the life that we we're meant to live, die the death that we we're meant to die in our place, taking on the consequences of our sin. He was buried and on the third day rose 
from the dead, proving that he is the Son of God and everything that he promised, proving that he has the power to deliver on the forgiveness of sin, a new relationship with God, and a promise of eternity, the same view that my mom has about her hope and a trust and joy, but a promise of eternity with God. And the story doesn't stop there because we are called to belong to Christ in this way as we accept the story, we accept the sacrifice of Christ. But we're also invited to participate in God's work of fixing his cosmos that has been broken by man's rebellion and sin until finally he comes back to renew his creation, remove all suffering, and institute a time of absolute peace justice, and joy. But there is an invitation to belong to Christ and in the now participate in the work of Christ in fixing his cosmos. I pray that if you don't already know that sense of belonging by accepting and affirming the sacrifice of Christ, accepting that invitation, that you would do so also this morning. Can I ask you to close your eyes and I pray for you? Pastor Louis, would you help us to pray, please? I want to pray for a couple of those applications. But can I start with praying and giving opportunity to people that in terms of your relationship with Jesus Christ, that you are on the outside still. And to say to you that there is an invitation that the Lord has sent to you and has made available to you to come back to the place where you belong. He made you for His pleasure. He made you for His purposes. He made you so that He could love you completely and perfectly. And he wants you to come back into your home, to come back to the place that is yours, to come sit at the table where a meal is prepared for you. So today may be an opportunity for you to come and say, I want to come home. So can we just close our eyes and just say, Lord Jesus, thank you for every person here today. And Many of us will say that we have come home, that we are followers of Christ, but we pray for those this morning that want to come home. And we pray, Holy Spirit, for the working of your grace and of your strength in each heart right now in Jesus' name. I pray that if there's somebody that's wrestling with this decision, that you would enable them to choose to follow Christ. And that this morning they can respond and come. And come into a place that has been prepared for them. As I end the service just now, I'm going to give those opportunity that feel you want to respond to that and to come to the Lord, to come to the front. And our team, our pastoral team and our elders and leaders will be here and they would want to speak with you and just pray with you. I also want to pray today for all of us. We all live in this broken world. We have all, to one degree or another, have experienced and suffered because of injustice, prejudice, 
just sometimes in our own lives seeing somebody else as the other. But we want to be the people of God. And we are so thankful for this, this person, the person of Jesus Christ, that opens our eyes to the right way to live. And can we this morning just bring our own hearts to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to see people the way you see them. I don't want to have lines and draw spaces in my life and put people in places where they can not be the heroes that you've created them to be. Continue to work in our hearts, Holy Spirit. Continue to restore us, mend us, so that we can live in the way that you have intended for us to live. That we can see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, if there's any found in us, any prejudice, Lord, come and heal our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name. And then, Lord, I also want to pray with people that are praying for their children. And come and stand with parents today. And strengthen them in their prayers and in their supplications for their children. Whether it's for the spiritual health and well-being of their children. Whether it's just for the protection, for the future of their children. Or whether they're fighting for the health and the well-being of their children. Lord, we come and stand together and we say, thank you, Lord. We know you. And we know that you hear our prayers. And we know that you are working on our behalf. And that you will do what you can do, Lord. Thank you for that faith, that rest we can have in faith. The peace we can have in faith, Lord, today. Let us not be anxious. But let us persist in our faith. Because faith produces harvest. And we thank you for that, Lord. Because you have declared it so. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we can be your body and we pray for this community, I pray today, and I ask you, Holy Spirit, come and help us to be the extension of the work of Christ and to do our work in our time to fix this world, Lord, so that people may know that you love them. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you all to stand. Please remember that today there's opportunity. If anybody wants to be baptized, you can go to the functions hall and there will be a time for baptism. But at this point, I would like to invite those that feel that today I want to make a decision to follow Christ, to come to the front. Just come. Bring your belongings with you and come and let us pray with you. Yes, you can give them a good round of applause and let's just welcome them and say, Come. If you come forward for prayer, I'm going to also give an opportunity for anybody else that would like us to pray with you. Perhaps you in a particular battle for a loved one, a child, and you, it would just be great for us to stand with you and stand with you in faith and to say, we, we put our prayers with you and we trust God for the breakthrough. Or whether it's in your, in your work life or whatever, let us pray with you this morning. 
But if you're coming forward particularly to say, I want to be a follower of Christ, please tell the person that, that's praying for you that this is, I want to give my heart to the Lord Jesus. So I want to become a follower of Christ and then they will help you and lead you in that way. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for going out, not just being at church today, but going out tomorrow and being the church of the Lord Jesus, wherever you find yourself. Thank you for the difference that you make in this city and in this world and in every place where you go, for loving people and for serving in our communities. We, we so love you and appreciate you. Have a great day until we see you again. Bless you. Amen.